0: going
1: to be a fun one, I think. Um, I'm glad to, enough of you have joined, because this is, this is where, like I said last week, we're getting into uh, things that impinge upon things and rely upon other things, and the slow pieces that they've been building for us start getting combined. As they combine, things get complicated, and uh, I'll be frank, my understanding of this becomes more uh, loose. <laughs> than I think it should be, but we'll figure out as we get going. I think it'll be great. Um, so I'll go ahead and kick us off and we'll dive in. Um, I am sharing the PDF as well, uh, so please uh, join and read along. We'll be continuing from, uh, it is the bottom of 290, Par- well, middle of 290, the paragraph that starts in point of fact. But before we get there, I have to do my lovely intro where I say hello and thank all of you for joining us today at the Deleuze and Guattari Quarantine Collective's ongoing reading of Anti-Oedipus. We are still within 4.2 The Molecular Unconscious. This is not an easy section. It's going to continue to get more difficult. We're going to spend a lot of time on these things. I'm excited for it. Uh, I have nothing to add beyond that, and I think we'll just dive into the main reading, unless anyone has uh, something they want to throw at the beginning of this. Kent, Jack?
2: A great day for the DGQC. Wonderful. Wonderful. So glad,
1: so glad you joined us, Jack. You contribute so much. It's what I do, man. (laughs) I bring the ruckus. There we go. Um, All right, then I'll start. Uh, we've just finished discussing, uh, the beginnings of why they use the term molecular and sort of some of the, uh, elements behind this of, uh, inspiration where they're building on these other elements. The big thing is Zondi's overall studies and Jacques Minaud as well in the previous couple chapters, uh, just to sort of go back over the previous paragraph because they're directly responding to it here. Uh, Zondi went out on this molecular path, trying to break things down rather than deal with the large-scale representations, looking towards this unconscious, that instead of this un- individual unconscious or Jung's collective unconscious, this genic or genealogical unconscious familial. As Zondi himself went on to study schizophrenia using familial aggregates as his unit of measure. But the genic unconscious is familial only to a small degree. Instead of reducing it to the usual images of Daddy Mommy, finally, some relation to the outside happens, this play that they're making at. Zondi went so far as to say, well, what about the shopkeeper? What about these other people that a child runs into? Uh, Are they not part of this family? Uh, The joke they're making is uh, that finally a relation to the outside we're able to break beyond, and maybe there is more than just the way that the family is set up. To so just read the paragraph and then I'll, the end of the paragraph, and I'll continue on uh, a whole alphabet, an entire axiomatic, done with photos of mad people. This has to be tried, testing the need for paternal feeling against a series of portraits of assassins. It is no use saying this remains within the bounds of Oedipus. The truth is that it throws them open in a remarkable way. The hereditary genes of drives therefore play the role of simple stimuli that enter into variable combinations following vectors that survey an entire social historical field, an analysis of destiny, which is Zandi's book. In point of fact, the truly molecular unconscious cannot confine itself to genes as its units of reproduction. These units are still expressive and lead to molar formations. Molecular biology teaches us that it is only the DNA that is reproduced and not the proteins. Proteins, Kent, you're clicking through, if you could just mute real quick. Uh, Proteins are both products and units of production. They are what constitutes the unconscious as a cycle or as the auto production of the unconscious, the ultimate molecular elements in the arrangement of the desiring machines and the synthesis, syntheses of desire. We have seen that through reproduction and its objects, defined familiarly or genetically, it is always the unconscious that produces itself in a cyclical orphan movement, a cycle of destiny where it always remains a subject. It is precisely on this point that the statutory independence of sexuality with regard to generation rests. Zondi senses this direction, according to which One must go beyond the molar to the molecular, so acutely that he takes exception to all statistical interpretations of what is wrongly called his test. What is more, he calls for going beyond contents towards the realm of functions. But he makes this advance, follows this direction, only by going from aggregates or classes towards categories, of which he establishes a systematically closed list. Categories that are still only expressive forms of existence that a subject is meant to choose and combine freely. For this reason, Zondi misses the internal or molecular element of desire, the nature of their machinic choices, arrangements, and combinations. He also misses the real question of schizoanalysis. What drives your own desiring machines? What is their functioning? What are the syntheses? into which they enter and operate. What use do you make of them in all the transitions that extend from the molecular to the molar, and inversely, and that constitute the cycle whereby the unconscious, remaining a subject, produces and reproduces itself. The opening parts here, I think, also are very crisp, and I just want to kind of go over them, and then I'll kind of open it up. Um, The opening here is... Uh, sort of a discussion around the idea of the genic unconscious. And whether or not the genic unconscious means that you have genes as its base level, the units of reproduction. Uh, the challenge here, and it's what they continue to go on, is that if we are talking about genes, let's say a strand of DNA that may be part of the you know handful of chromosomes we get as people, Uh, Those are by nature themselves expressive. We're able to say what a gene does, what a gene is. We're able to label it with representation. It's not quite the base layers. Instead, we actually need to uh, go a little bit further. We're a little bit differently. The way they describe it, the phrase here. Molecular biology teaches us that it is only the DNA that is reproduced, not the proteins. Proteins are both products and units of production. They are what constitutes the unconscious as a cycle or the autoproduction of the unconscious, the ultimate molecular elements in the arrangement of the desiring machines and syntheses of desire. So in that discussion of where the genic unconscious fits in here, they take it another step further towards the proteins that make up the genes, that make up the elements that continue on and so forth. I really love that beginning. Uh, I open it up for comments, questions, anything.
2: Yeah, I'll tack on to that just to call back to a few paragraphs ago. Um, so just like you're saying, right, there's this point about understanding production, reproduction, and there's something about DNA that's helping us do this, right? Um, going back to page 288, to losing lottery, right? It is only at the sub-microscopic level Mm. of desire machines that there exists a functionalism, machinic arrangements, and engineering of desire. For it is only there that the functioning and formation, use and assembly, product and production merge. All molar functionalism is false since the organic or social machines are not formed in the same way they function. And the technical machines are not assembled in the same way they are used but imply precisely the specific conditions that separate their own production from their distinct product. So I I think one of the things we can start to draw out here is this point about functioning and formation, producing and product, and the way that this is tied into the molecular. Uh, If I remember correctly, in 1.1, when they first introduced the BWO, they talk about the, the producing product identity of it. And you start to get the sense of how this is tied into the molecular, right? Because at the molar level, if we're dealing with things in aggregation, we're dealing with things kind of as they pile up through production, right? Um, and I think this point about the proteins really does kind of get at this point about units of production going through functional processes of production, as opposed to kind of dealing with the output of that as it accumulates, where you get the molar or more directly going into... the the larger social context, where we start talking about, you know, uh, groups in that more aggregative sense, where things of the um, things are collective, kind of in a in a I hesitate to say larger, but in a, um, a cumulative sense, that things are kind of amassing that way, as opposed to functioning in processes directly. But they play off each other, right? Because this is always, I think. The important point with production and reproduction of the molar molecular, that the the proteins can be productive and product, and at the same time, right? So they um, they affect the molar in the same way that the molar affects the molecular.
1: Phrasing around that very much, and it's worth uh, Kent has posted um, uh, links to the Zone d test, which is uh, the background of it, how it operates. So I think you can get into a lot of what jack is talking about there zondi's test deals with the actual functioning of drives how they play how they work against each other it's not just two drives life and death it's a massive amount of drives and they collide and then there's other functions and it's 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 very early work that i mean even itself is sort of seen as a, a bout for early so, sort of psychotherapy in general as we even know it today test itself is kind of laughably not there anymore, but it was, a, it was a leap forward significantly. And it's worth uh, taking a look sort of through the entire uh, setup, how the tests sort of operate. Really interesting.
2: I think you illustrated the point really nicely there too, right, to get in the last part about categories, right? Categories is something molar don't pre-exist processes of production and thereby categories aren't functions. So, like, if you take it at, like, um, we always go for gender, right? You know, the the category of male is not a functionality, right? It's not what something's doing, but it is a category that speaks to an amassing of, the, um, of what does the male, right? Whatever that's going to be, whatever functionality we're talking about. So, just like that with personality, right? I think you're spot on there, Brutz, right? Hmm. We think about, like, the Myers-Briggs. That's that's exactly the problem they run into is the functionalities are in the categorical as opposed to being in like the processes of production. You end up having the molder doing way too much work.
1: Uh, the line uh, from the previous paragraph that sort of goes into here, uh, the analysis of destiny, which is Zandi's work, uh, played with the idea that people who uh, have drives that operate a certain way Tend to work towards a very specific occupation with life, or do things in life. There is a, a destiny in terms of uh, sort of self-selection, sort of in the nature of. Uh, I want to say like it's like Heidegger and a handful of others uh, sort of plays with that. So uh, it's it's an interesting sort of play in the entire idea. But as Deluz sort of takes through it, and we make our way through, he's slowly taking apart. We have to go. Uh, we have to go with him when he goes beyond the content towards the realm of function, but he stops at categories. We need to go even further beyond this to the internal elements of categories, the bits of it, the proteins of the DNA, the way that these things actually function. What is their function at the base level? And now we have desiring machines they've gone through. Um, what are the syntheses which these in turn operate? How do you? What do you make of them in all their transitions that extend? Uh, production is the big deal here. The next uh, paragraph is going to be getting into the drives that sort of fuel that. But uh, if you have any questions, uh, comments before I move on, please. That's
0: a fairly crisp paragraph as far as it goes. Self-contained. We use the term libido to designate
1: the specific energy of desiring machines. And the transformations of this energy, Newman, and Voluptus, are never desexualizations or sublimations. This terminology, indeed, seems extremely arbitrary. Considering the two ways in which the desiring machine must be viewed, what they have to do with a properly sexual energy is not immediately clear. Either they are assigned to the molecular order that is their own, or they are assigned to the molar order where they form the organic or social machines invest organic or social surroundings. It is in fact difficult to present sexual energy as directly cosmic and intra-atomic, and at the same time as directly socio-historical. It would be futile to say that love has to do with proteins and society. This would amount to reviving, yet once more, the old attempts at liquidating Freudianism by substituting for the libido a vague cosmic energy capable of all of the, the metamorphoses, or a kind of socialized energy capable of all the investments? Or would we do better to review Reich's final attempt involving a biogenesis that, not without justification, is qualified as a schizo mode of reasoning? It will be remembered that Reich concluded in favor of an intra-atomic cosmic energy, the orgone, Generative of an electrical flux and carrying submicroscopic particles, the bions. This energy produced differences in potential or intensities distributed on the body considered from a molecular viewpoint and was associated with a mechanics of fluids in the same body considered from a molar viewpoint. What defined the libido as sexuality was therefore the association of the two modes of operation, mechanical and electrical, a sequence with two poles, molar and molecular, mechanical tension, electrical charge, electrical discharge, mechanical relaxation. Reich thought he had, thus, overcome the alternative between mechanism and vitalism, since these functions, mechanical and electrical, existed in matter in general, but were combined in a particular sequence within the living. Above all, he upheld the basic psychoanalytic truth, the supreme disavowal of which he was able to denounce in Freud, the independence of sexuality with regard to reproduction,
0: the subordination of progressive or regressive reproduction to sexuality, cycle. Footnote.
1: Uh, All of Reich's last studies, uh, biocosmic and biogenetic, are summarized at the end of William Reich, The Function of the Orgasm. The primacy of sexuality over regeneration and reproduction comes to be based on the cycle of sexuality, mechanical tension, electrical charge, etc., which leads to a division of the cell. But very early in his work, Reich reproached Freud for having abandoned the sexual position. It was not only the dissidents from Freud who abandoned this position, it was Freud himself in a certain fashion. A first time
0: when he introduces death instinct. All right, there's a lot of old psychoanalytic shit in here to go through and sort of set up. Um, oof. Where to start would be the question. Um, the The first thing let's go over um
1: the opening here uh they use the term libido to designate the specific energy of desiring machines. They're very particular here uh libido sexual life force push all of that and the transformations of this energy, Newman and voluptus, are never desexualizations or sublimation um, sublimations in this uh context and in psychoanalytic theory uh in general, I think psychology even is uh, the drive of something that is not acceptable transformed into something that is. Uh, the drive to masturbate uh, transformed into woodworking, as an example, the sublimation of drives that allows you to do things inside of a society, basically, and exist. Pretty sure that's a, that may be a root, too rudimentary. That's like basic. Um, but their question that they have here is, well, wait, where is the desire good and where is the desire bad? Even the idea of sublimation itself feels arbitrary. Uh, either you're viewing desiring machines uh, in the molecular order uh, that is theirs, or they're assigned to the molar order where they are part of the social machines. They don't cross, they're this, they're, they are molecular, they're, they're individualized in these tiny little bits that are part of this entire process. So where does the sublimation take place and where do we assign that? How do we determine that? And it's that's to them the terminology seems arbitrary for this reason. This is the beginning of this. And as they kind of carry forward as I read this, um, it's them sort of talking through the way that sexuality uh and energy plays into everything we're doing. It feels like they're starting to talk about the issue of uh Oh, I—desiring I, machines are unconscious. Want to fuck? They want to fuck. They have the sexual desire, cool. and at some point, they have a general shift, and now they're utilizing the sexual energy and sublimating it to go, you know, work at a factory, for example. Um, and they feel like it feels like there's a critique of that in here as they sort of go through Reich and a few others. Probably an oversimplified reading of that, but it's basics. Um, please, it's open
0: for anyone if you want. Yeah, I'll add to that. Um, so one of the things I take from this
2: is like, so, I mean, if we, if we place, if we place Freudianism as their time on this context, right. There was a lot of literature going on kind of before Antioedipus about what to do with Freud, um, especially in a social context, right. Um, for the Frankfurt School and like a, you know, whether we're talking about Reich or something like Eros and Civilization, um, that was a big deal, right? And I think the I think the part of the critique they're making here um, is actually toward Reich, right? Because they write, Reich thought he had thus overcome the alternative between mechanism and vitalism. Since these functions, mechanical and electrical, existed in manner in general, but were combined in a particular sequence within the living, and above all, So before going into that, right, so this is kind of reiterating an earlier point in this section, which is that basically there's an exclusive disjunction between uh, mechanism and vitalism. And as far as Reich went, he still seems to be kind of abiding by that disjunction, even if he's going to say that there's a mechanistic and a vitalistic component, it would still seem to be basically an exclusive either or. Right, it's either matter or it's got this kind of vivacity to it, this uh, libidinal aspect, which means there's going to be this problems. I think is what they're getting at. If you if you have this exclusive disjunction like that, you're going to get into a problem of desexualization, like Brutz was saying as well, sublimation included. Right, because if you're going from the sexual into the material, and that cuts off one for the other then you're going to lose desire, right? And they kind of echo this point about Reich elsewhere, that there's an issue between trying to do the whole rational um, and then desiring thing that ends up, um, and it's exactly what they say about um, their critique of him criticizing Freud, is that you end up reproducing the problem, which is instead of getting to desire on its own terms as opposed to putting it in terms of rationality, you end up making that separation only to put it right back into rationality, right? It's a similar problem here with um, with sexuality and uh, desexualization or sublimation, right? That there'd be a transformation would seem to actually desexualize desiring production, but to and water. are saying, no, a transformation of libido is still sexuality, right? It's still production and reproduction. It's one process nonetheless, as opposed to like,
0: um, and this is where you kind of get the castrating problem, as opposed to a cutting off of that process. If the details of Reich's final theory are taken into consideration,
1: we admit that it's simultaneously schizophrenic and paranoiac nature is no obstacle where we are concerned. Contrary. We admit that any comparison of sexuality with cosmic phenomena such as electrical storm, blue color of the sky and the blue-gray of atmospheric haze, the blue of the orgone, saying almost fire in the bluish formations of sunspot activity, fluids and flows, matters and particles, in the end, appear to us more adequate than the reduction of sexuality to the pitil- pit- pitiful little familialist secret. We think that Lawrence and Miller have a more accurate evaluation of sexuality than Freud, even from the viewpoint of the famous scientificity. It is not the neurotic, stretched out on the couch who speaks to us of love, of its force and its despair, but the mute stroll of the schizo, lenses outing in the mountains and under the stars, the immobile voyage in intensities on the body without organs. As to the whole of Reichian theory, it possesses the incomparable advantage of showing the double pole of the libido as the molecular formation on the submicroscopic scale and as an investment of the molar formations on the scale of the social and organic aggregates. All that is missing is the confirmations of common sense. Why, in what sense, is this sexuality?
0: Actually, a pretty crisp paragraph one of their big critiques of Freud with libidinal energy just in general
1: to this point, just to sort of reiterate it may be worth it, is that uh, Freud very much believed there were that libido had drives towards specific things, that there was a deterministic sort of aspect to libido. Um, It wanted X, it wanted Y. Again, the idea of edipolization became prescriptive of the libido rather than um, descriptive. And so that is a lot where a lot of this is coming when they're talking about sort of this freeing of the libido, the breaking of the sublimation, the, the way that it's in this position molecularly, but also invested in this at the molar level. We're talking about the same sort of underlying energy, but they end this. But why, in what sense is this sexuality? Why libido as the word that they're. We can continue on. Any questions on this though? Please, uh, it's open. Type away in the chat. Uh, I
0: always give it a moment. Happy to. Um,
3: one thing that could be said is that there's kind of a relation. This this idea of uh, se- sexual energy in relation to the cosmos uh, kind of reminds us of, uh, say, the Tao Te Ching and Chinese ideas of chi and. Uh, or like, for instance, uh, uh, there are similar ideas uh, in India, for instance, of kind of flowing energies. Um, but an interesting connection here is that uh, when Lacan talks about sexuality, he specifically says he's talking about the kind of yin yang differences in chi as the basis for talking about sexuality. So, so I think there might be a subterranean kind of connection between this talk about, about Reich and Lacan's ideas of sexuality.
0: Hmm. And Lacan takes just in general, let Lacan sort of takes a lot of stuff
1: from, Freud and does some crazy shit with it he takes the entire concept of the structural Oedipus and turns it into sort of a linguistic play um, uh, abstract existentialist almost um, and it plays in a completely different space in its own way so yeah Lacan does a lot sort of, sort of in this direction Lacan's sexuality would be really interesting I wish Ken were in here I don't have enough of a background on Lacan to really talk about it but I think
0: you're right there's a the way desire plays inside of Lacan is just so different. Anyone else, please? Now would be the time. Now would be the time. This is a slightly related point, um, although perhaps you could apply it to Lacanian
2: sexuality. Um, one of the things I get out of this paragraph is. Um, and I hesitate because I know uh, I don't, I'm i the only one that likes those diagrams, right? <laughs> but I can't help but kind of, um, when they're talking about the like the antipodal nature of desire, right, um, as contrasted, or at least as compared with the simultaneity of the schizophrenic and parano- paranoiac nature of Wright's theory, right, that it's possible to view what Wright's talking about in both cases. You know, I think of those diagrams being applied again, right? kind of pendulum oscillation again. But at the same time, there's the perspective that um, that this libidinal energy with the schizophrenic and paranoiac simultaneity, right, that insistence is still um, propelling what Reich is talking about forward. In fact, they're being kind of kind here now too, because they're saying, right, um, even though we have this critique about what's happening to sexuality here, right does go still go pretty far you know i mean as silly as it seems to talk about electrical storms and saint elmo's fire uh, and the blue formations of sunspot activity at least we're talking about fluids flows matter and particles right at least we're trying to get at like the molecular
0: um, aspect of desire here hmm. so you know that's kind of the the virtue of Wright's theory is you get
2: paranoiac and the schizophrenic you get the molar and the molecular um the social and organic aggregates as they say there it's just getting down to the point of like the sexualization of it all that they're they're now going to
0: i think focus on more directly yeah i like that All right, I'll continue. Cynicism has said, or claimed to
1: have said, everything there is to say about love. That it is a matter of a copulation of social and organic machines on a large scale. At bottom, love is in the organs. At bottom, love is a matter of economic determination, money. But what is properly cynical is to claim a scandal where there is none to be found, and to pass for bold while lacking boldness better the delirium of common sense than its platitude, for the prime evidence points to the fact that desire does not take, as its object, persons or things, but the entire surroundings, it traverses, the vibrations and flows of every sort to which it is joined, introducing therein breaks and captures, always nomadic and migrant desire, characterized, first of all, by its gigantism, no one has shown this more clearly than Charles Fourier. In a word, the social as well as biological surroundings are the object of unconscious investments that are necessarily desiring or libidinal, in contrast with the preconscious investments of need or interest. The libido as sexual energy is the direct investment of masses, of large aggregates, of social fields and organic fields. We have difficulty understanding what principles psychoanalysis uses to support its conception of desire, when it maintains that the libido must be desexualized or even sublimated in order to proceed to the social investments, and inversely, that the libido only resexualizes these investments during the course of pathological regression. Unless the assumption of such a conception is still familialism, that is, an assumption holding that sexuality operates only in the family, It must be transformed in order to invest larger crickets. Uh, To say what they're referring to here from Freud, three case histories. Persons who have not freed themselves completely from the stage of narcissism, who, that is to say, have at that point a fixation which may operate as a disposing factor for the later illness, are exposed to the danger that some unusually intense wave of libido, finding no other outlet, May lead to a sexualization of their social instincts, and so undo the work of sublimation which they had achieved in the course of their development. This result may be produced by anything that causes the libido to flow backwards, causes re- regression. Paranoiacs endeavor to protect themselves against any such sexualization of their social instinctual sexes. The opening here, I've. Always found a little bit kind of beautiful, poetic,
0: uh, almost romantic um, way it's talked about. Um, What is properly cynical is to claim a scandal where there is none to be found to pass for bold while lacking bold.
1: Better the delirium of common sense than platitude. For the prime evidence points to the fact that desire does not take as its object persons or things, but the entire surrounding it reverses. Vibrations and flows of every sort. Which it is joined, introducing therein breaks and captures nomadic migrant desire, characterized first of all by its gigantism. I adore that sentence um again rings true to me punctually bit, but I like, as we've talked about up to this point, the way desire operates, the way we go is we don't see a person we don't see a painting or a color or whatever it's the the entire the entirety of the surroundings it's almost like everything is hyper contextual as we connect to it uh, this idea of this hyper contextual connection that's always happening the intensities the oddness the breaks the captures this everything that is in the surrounding of those moments uh, that is what desire takes desire doesn't just take the person
0: you're looking at or your image of them. There's a lot more. And the critique of sort
1: of classic libidinal desire economy where uh, I have a lot of sexual energy, I sublimate it properly, I go work out, I'm a boxer, or uh, I'm a, a woodworker, which is I think the old sort of a trope or uh, whatever it may be, and all of my energy goes into that. And if I'm not careful, I might fall back into the whole sex thing. Um, it, it feels deeply outdated, but also, um, as they're talking about here, um, the silliness is sexuality starts in a place of familialism. It, how could we possibly have sexuality burst elsewhere <laughs> if if it's not? That op- sexuality operates only in the family it must be transformed to invest into larger aggregates this is a very odd assumption now, working with woodworking in general there's the old uh it's like from the 50s granted i'm not even this old i'm kind of old but you're talking about like that's what they taught like boys you get you do whittling you do wood carving in order to do that the i the idea of idle hands being the devil's playground. Um, that's the that's sublimation. That's literally what sublimation is. Is idle hands are the devil's playground. Find a good use for it.
2: You know why, whittle brutes?
1: I I don't want to know, Jeff. Is it if it's really it's gonna be related to Star Wars, uh, or it's gonna no, be? No,
2: re- it's because I'm in a I'm in a town where a yellow light still means slow down.
0: Twin Peaks this time. <laughs> that's, that's that's not bad. That's, I'll take a Twin Peaks reference. But it's, this is, this is their,
1: their critique of this idea of this sexuality that has to be sublimated and then may burst elsewhere, but is still trapped in the family. All of these things they feel are just, just these weird, odd little bits of contradiction. The next paragraph is a lot. Um, there's a lot happening in this next one because we're talking about a different form of sexuality the, of sexual desire a different form of desire than what is very traditionally thought of in let alone psychoanalysis but we'll talk about sort of at large so um but there's a lot of fun lines to use about nazis so and fascists in general so enjoy that um i'm going
0: to continue moving forward we will have to take time in this next paragraph because oh my god it's long yeah okay. the truth is
1: that sexuality is everywhere. The way a bureaucrat fondles his records, a judge administers justice, a businessman causes money to circulate, the way the bourgeoisie fucks the proletariat, and so on. And there is no need to resort to metaphors any more than for the libido to go by way of metaphors, metamorphosis. Hitler got the fascists sexually aroused. Legs Nations, armies, banks get a lot of people aroused. A revolutionary machine is nothing if it does not acquire at least as much force as these coercive machines have for producing breaks and mobilizing flows. It is not through a desexualizing extension that the libido invests the large aggregates. On The contrary. It is through a restriction, a blockage, and a reduction that the libido is made to repress its flows in order to contain them in the narrow cells of each type, couple, family, person, objects. And doubtless such a blockage is necessarily justified. The libido does not come to consciousness except in relation to a given body, <clears throat> a given person that it takes as object. But our object choice, itself, refers to a conjunction of flows of life and of society that this body and this person intercept, receive, and transmit, always within a biological, social, and historical field, where we are equally immersed or with which we communicate. The persons to whom our loves are dedicated, including the parental persons, intervene only as points of connection, of disjunction, of conjunction, of flows whose libidinal tenor of a properly unconscious investment they translate. Thus, no matter how well grounded the love <coughs> the love blockage is, it curiously changes its function, depending on whether it engages desire in the oedipal impasses of the couple and the family in the service of oppressive machines, or whether, on the contrary, it condenses a free energy capable of fueling a revolutionary machine. Here again, everything has already been said by Fourier, when he shows the two contrary directions of the Captivation or the mechanization of the passions. But, we always make love with worlds, and our love addresses itself to the libidinal property of our lover, to either close himself off or open up to more spacious worlds, to masses and large aggregates. There is always something statistical in our loves, and something belonging to the laws of large numbers. And isn't it in this way that we must understand the famous formula of Marx? The relationship between man and woman is the direct, natural, and necessary relation of person to person. That is, the relationship between the two sexes, man and woman, is only the measure of the relationship of sexuality in general, insofar as it invests large aggregates man and man. Whence what came to be called the species determination of the sexuality of the two sexes? And must it not also be said that the phallus is not one sex, but sexuality in its entirety, which is to say the sign of the large aggregate invested by the libido, whence the two sexes necessarily derive both in separation, the two homosexual series of man and man, woman and woman and in their statistical relation than this aggregate one of the ways i had this explained to me that clicked and i'm wondering if it does for anyone else is they're not hiding away from the they're not shying away from the idea that the libido is sexuality they're just saying that sexuality isn't just putting your penis in things or arousal that is directly related to uh procreation or fucking that there is sexuality as a desire that literally is everywhere and they embrace this the idea of connection sensation the desire for sensation the way that we touch the way that we do things everything is about arousal we we always make love with worlds it bosker one of my favorite lines too um we're always making love we always make love with worlds we are always making love with worlds that sexuality is not something they're shying away from here um The lines I really, really love, Hitler got the fascists sexually aroused um flags, nations, armies, banks get a lot of people aroused um it's accurate um watch some proud boys propaganda there is it's not beneath the scenes like there are people make jokes about it being, oh, they're just repressed, it's like I mean they are for sure, but they're explicitly sexual like and there's a lot of stuff that they do that is very explicitly so. These these things play, and the line that matches that, that is equally important if we're talking about what the fuck we can do about it, a revolutionary machine is nothing if it does not acquire at least as much force as these coercive machines have for producing breaks and mobilizing flows. The Our response can't ignore that. We, we need to understand that these things... Do arouse. They do engender this these passions to be heightened. The, the desire for them flows and a revolution can't be ascetic in comparison. It has to outdo it. Um is a phenomenal. That's just the first three or four lines of this. Um I'm gonna leave the next section. I need to get some water. Uh Jack, can't anyone want to take the next bit?
2: I think you're um I think you're spot on there because if we understand and they've made this point about like not doing an anthropomorphic or centric um understanding of sexuality, but if we're just talking about sexuality through like through people and like you're saying, just like the penis and that, then we're also very limited in the scope we can talk about desire because if we're thinking about this
0: through vitalism, with the losing water and obviously for we're not limited to sexuality
2: in terms of you know, one person's uh, interest in other person's uh, sexual organs, right? It's more or less what they're, I think, critiquing here without going into any carnal, unlawful knowledge uh, to be Van Halen-esque about it. So instead, what that leaves us with is the three syntheses and understanding sexuality, not in terms of like um child reproduction or just like you know basic orgasms and that, but more so through connection, distribution, and consummation consumption, right? Which I think is one of the interesting things that goes on here is they they focus on I believe it's in this paragraph, otherwise it's the preceding one. They focus more directly on the um on the conjunct. And I believe it was with where they're talking about making love and all that, right? They're talking about the the production of the production of that effects, right, and intensities that ultimately something like the person kind of becomes the medium for in a certain in a manner of speaking. Postgrid rents, I think at least some of the misunderstandings due to so called arousal having a bad personal epistemology. People assuming the arousal ought ought to come out in regular forms as opposed to working woodworking or fascism right different forms of sublimation that are more normal to people in 21 than woodworking right
1: um i would even add because that's the thing that they are going deep in here when they talk about the movement of sexuality not being purely familial the the way that we have over time built this idea that sex has a desire a desire has a object that it hits this thing and it wants that uh boys want to fuck girls this wants to do that you it is ultimately stemming from this weird familialism where sex is sort of constrained but if we can break that out and start talking about the libido as sort of its own the nature of connection the way of all of this when we start talking then about what love comes to be it's not that i'm falling in love i don't love my wife that person that's it it's all of these elements that the, as, as they phrase, and I actually think it's like kind of a nice uh, romantic sentiment that I really appreciate. The person to whom our loves are dedicated, including parental persons, intervene only as points of connection, of disjunction, of conjunction of flows, whose libidinal tenor of a properly unconscious investment they translate. That's an interesting way of phrasing about how my libidinal desire connects with people and they translate it and they it, it's it's the way that these flows sort of operate socially between people when we start breaking away from sex has this goal sex wants that and we start talking about sexuality we realize maybe we don't need to desexualize things in fact sex is kind of everywhere it's kind of always there actually with everything and it's a, it's more, it's less a discussion of sublimation, and more a, uh, hey, actually, is there something else here? That is there something that is all, this always going energy about connection? That is their opening line here. The truth is that sexuality is everywhere. And they mean that quite literally. That's not like a, hey, there's oh, everyone wants to fuck. It's like no, there's sexuality is everywhere, always driving. It's not just. Oh, I want to go in the bathroom and fuck. It's having a great time out doing fucking karaoke. Like it doesn't have to be directly about.
0: It's it's the connection across all of it in the world that we're existing in. Yeah, yeah, I really think I'm with you on that because um, right. So like this is part of the part of the states
2: of talking about sexuality in this manner, right? The binary law. There's flows being emitted and there's flows breaking. Right. If that's your sexuality, then, you know, that that does open up this kind of metaphysics Um, to that. I'd also add, right. This is kind of their point about the circuitry and, and we'll get into love in the next sections. I don't want to go down that too deeply because they explain it better um there than they do here. But I do think it stands to say something that you can start to see, like the states of mechanism and vitalism as well as their relation to desexualization, sublimation, right? I mean, this is kind of an old um, argument and it's one that like um, I think even Sartre to a point has um, that with this point about desexualization and um, sublimation or just kind of denying the unconscious uh, to the more extreme point, right? They're trying to open the way up for intentionality and something like rationality being directed toward objects. Uh, And I think that's kind of what we're getting differently here is instead of like intentionality um, or things being tied to objects, such that like a force would be tied to that, tied to, um, right? The force of hunger would be tied to like uh, the breast or something like that. Instead with the use of vitalism and mechanism, right? you get a co-coordination or just a coordination really uh, a cooperation in a more general sense between forces and objects where the objects take on functions productively just like um, desire takes on um, this kind of animating role right of producing the flows or really providing the flows um, that will flow
0: or emit and be able to be translated by the the people, the objects that happen to be mechanized. The play towards the end of this paragraph is also fascinating because
1: it has a line in here that, uh, I mean, we can, I'm certain people agree with, we can have discussions on, but it's uh, specifically referring to the way that the phallus is no longer uh, one sex, but instead sexuality in its entirety the sign of the large aggregate invested by the libido, whence the two sexes naturally derive, both in their separation and in their statistical relations within the aggregate. The move away from, again, um, the libido being at the phallus or the phallus being the penis and only men, like, again, driving away from this idea of the person or the the deterministic side of what sexuality wants moving it into the place of, of connection, of the world that we make love with. And in the social realm, as we start talking about what the more is, that large aggregate is what sexuality then becomes that is then the phallus, that is then the repressive element. Because it is, again, social and not
0: something that's happening at the molecular level. It's a hell of a statement. My favorite part of that statement is that they're attributing it to Martz because Marx was talking about the phallus, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which means we've got to pose the question here. How much socially necessary labor time does it take to woodwork? Such a good
1: paragraph. Um, any questions or comments? I, I do want to read Tiernan posted from uh, DNR.
0: Um, a Phenomenal. quote. Discussing this is all about Bruce Church of Lost. Oh Christ! What is with my brain today? Church of Lost time. Uh, For it is not the other which is another eye,
1: but the eye which is an other, a fractured eye. There is no love which does not begin with the revelation, revelation of a. Possible world as such, inwound in the other which expresses it. Albertine's face
0: expressed the blending of Beech and wave. What unknown world does she distinguish me? There we go. We time for some uh, post-human. But Marx
1: says something even more mysterious. That the true difference is not the difference between the two sexes but the difference between the human sex and the non-human sex. It is clearly not a question of animals, nor of animal sexuality. Something quite different is. If sexuality is the unconscious investment of the large molar aggregates, it is because on its other side, sexuality is identical with the interplay of the molecular elements that constitute these aggregates under determinate conditions the dwarfism of desire, as a correlate to its gigantism. Sexuality and the desiring machines are one and the same inasmuch as these machines are present and operating in the social machines, in their field, their formation, functioning. Desiring machines are the non-human sex, the molecular machinic elements, their arrangements and their syntheses, without which there would be neither a human sex specifically determined in the large aggregates nor human sexuality capable of investing these aggregates in a few sentences marx who is nonetheless so miserly and reticent where sexuality is concerned exploded something that will hold freud and all of psychoanalysis forever
0: captive the anthropomorphic representation of sex Really good lines in there. Again, this is a very crisp paragraph. Is anyone
1: not understanding this genuinely? Please type in the chat because this should be following from what we've been discussing. Uh, it should be making some level of sense. I'm happy to dive into any sentence or any part of it. But I want, right, before we go further, it's worth taking a moment. If anyone's having questions, please, now would be the
0: time. No judgments at all. Don't worry about it at all. I'm. I was dumb as shit with this stuff. It took
1: me, like, seriously sitting here with people and having people like Kent, and uh, and Jack, and a few who aren't joining us this time around, uh, to tell me about what the hell all of this means because this is a big shift in how a lot of these things work. It might be easier. For some of you probably I want to just do my best to encourage. If you have questions, don't think twice. That would be the time. Anything that's difficult. Anything that's there, Misha. Hello.
4: Yeah. Maybe not a question, but more of a, um, a celebration of this paragraph. <laughs> that I think it's um, such a, a clear, in a way, such a clear summary where D and G um, take Freud further than and sort of take desire out of the problematic sphere, in my opinion. I, I just love um, the posing of this uh, beyond um, the reactionary uh, models that uh, others have used that write about desire.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a great paragraph. And that's why I like wanted to stop, because it's if you're not grasping it, which is fine, but this is clarity. So I'll give it another
0: second or two worth taking a moment and I, i'm happy to cut this out of recording it's not a problem you have something but
1: this is this is such a good set of lines i just like the line that of, of all people even Marx, who's miserly and resistant where sexuality is concerned completely changed it's the anthropomorphic representation of sex this
0: non-human conception of sexual desire and connection we're about to get into Right now.
1: What we call anthropomorphic representation is just as much the idea that there are two sexes as the idea that there is only one. We know how Freudianism is permeated by this bizarre notion that there is finally only one sex, the masculine, in relation to which the woman, feminine, is dinned as a lack, an absence. It could be thought at first that such a hypothesis founds the omnipotence of a male homosexuality. Yet, this is not at all the case. What is founded here is rather the statistical aggregate of intersexual loves. For if the woman is defined as a lack in relation to the man, the man in his turn lacks what is lacking in the woman, simply in another fashion. The idea of a single sex necessarily leads to the erection of a phallus as an object on high, which distributes lack as two non-superimposable sides and makes the two sexes communicate in a common absence, frustration. Women, as psychoanalysts or psychoanalyzed, can then rejoice in showing man the way and in recuperating equality in difference. Whence the irresistibly comical nature of the formulas according to which one gains access to desire through castration. But the idea that there are two sexes, after all, is no better. This time, like Melanie Klein, one attempts to define the female sex by means of positive characteristics. Even they be terrifying. At least in this way, one avoids phallocentrism, if not anthropomorphism. But this time, far from founding the communication between the two sexes, one founds instead their separation into two homosexual series that remain statistical. And one does not, by any means, escape castration. It is simply that castration, instead of being the principle of sex conceived as the masculine sex, the great castrated soaring phallus, becomes the result of sex conceived as the feminine sex, the little hidden absorbed penis. We maintain, therefore, that castration is the basis for the anthropomorphic and molar representation of sexuality. Castration is the universal belief that brings together and disperses both men and women under the yoke of one and the same illusion of consciousness. They adore this yoke. Every attempt to determine the non-human nature of sex, for example, the great other in Lacan, while conserving myth and castration, is defeated from the start. And what does Jean-Francois Léotard mean in his commentary, so profound, nevertheless, on Marx's text, when he sees the opening of the non-human as having to be the entry of the subject into desire through castration? Long live castration, so that desire may be strong? Only fantasies are truly desired? What a perverse, all-too-human
0: idea. An idea originating in bad consciousness, and not in the unconscious. Anthropomorphic
1: molar representation culminates in the very thing that founds it, the ideology of lack. The molar unconscious, on the contrary, knows nothing of castration, because partial objects lack nothing and form free multiplicities as such. Because the multiple breaks never cease producing flows instead of repressing them, Cutting them at a single stroke, the only break capable of exhausting them. Because the three syntheses constitute local and nonspecific connections, inclusive disjunctions, nomadic connections, everywhere a microscopic transsexuality resulting in the woman containing as many men as the man, the man as many women, all capable of entering, men with women, women with men, into relations of production of desire. That overturn the statistical order of the sexes. Making love is not just becoming as one or even two, but becoming as a hundred thousand. Desiring machines or the non human sex, not one or even two sexes, but in sexes. Schizoanalysis is the variable analysis of the in sexes in a subject, beyond. The anthropomorphic representation that society imposes on the subject and with which it represents its own sexuality. The schizoanalytic slogan of the desiring revolution will be first of all to
4: each its own sexes. Can I just get a hell yeah?
0: It's it's such a fucking good ending paragraph. Jesus
4: Um I I have two things.
1: Let's do it. Fire away.
4: The first thing is that I just want to, for the recording, correct you really quickly that, of course, you were talking about the molecular unconscious in the last part. Uh, you oh, You accidentally crap. said molar.
1: Wait, where, where, where? Where did
4: I screw up? Uh, in the, the molecular unconscious, on the contrary, knows nothing of castration because partial objects... Did like I say nothing. molar? Yeah, you accidentally said molar, which is confusing in this context. Crap, crap, crap. Um... And then my other question was more of an open question about um, the the step from one sex to two sexes. Mm-hmm. Um, in they're talking about um, re, yeah recuperating equality in difference, which is uh, I I get what they're saying about the two sexes because they're still. Um relating to castration right like i I get that part, but on the other hand, recuperating equality indifference is something that also applies to um what they say later right um in to 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 anyone at sex um the principle of recuperating quality indifference still holds up doesn't it I don't um, see the problem with that inherently
1: well one's binary and one's not. I mean, that would be my first sort of comment back. Is one is very much binary, and one is not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, to each their sexes is not to each their male or female. That's there's a reason they say not one, not two, but n sexes. The 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 journey they go on is basically like with Lacan, which is the famous line he had. That I mean can be misinterpreted, whatever, but it still said that like the woman doesn't exist, like flat out saying such a thing. Uh, having that conversation that it's only men, women are a uh, contrast to that based on X, Y, or Z, but everyone basically is man or man lacking a thing. That's hyper-normative. Well, then what if we do a positive female? So it's like, oh, that's, you have this and that. And then suddenly that becomes, I think they, uh, even if they are terrifying, I think is the Melanie Klein line that I really liked. Some Ken explained it to me last time where we read a piece Uh. Boy, some of her work is not very, very uh, pleasant. Um, But then uh, the the continuation of that, that they keep going down is, we have now the castration, this thing that's sort of unifying, but what if we, why do we need such a thing? Why do we have that? Why are we even playing with such a thing? Move away. It's making love is not becoming as one, or even two, but becoming hundred thousand. The line specifically, um, We want to think about all of these little elements and partial objects and stuff. Let me reread the sentence I fucked up. Uh, The molecular unconscious, on the contrary, knows nothing of castration because partial objects lack nothing and form free multiplicities as such because the multiple breaks never cease producing flows instead of repressing them, cutting them at a single stroke, the only break capable of exhausting them, because the syntheses constitute local and non-specific connections, inclusive disjunctions, nomadic conjunctions, everywhere a microscopic transsexuality, resulting in the woman containing as many men as the man and the man as many women, all capable of entering into relations of production of desire that overturn the statistical order of the sexes. Whatever they may be, again, as sexuality is everywhere, and sex is everywhere, we're not now confined to the familial binary, that is ultimately the phallus, the Oedipalization, all of these things. Now it's the non-human, the anthropomorphic sexuality, a uh, uh, non-anthropomorphic, I guess, would be the way to phrase that. You know, playing around uh, in these things that plays a different space. Sorry to ramble, but that's that's how I. Find
4: it. I have one more question about lack in this paragraph but Mm. mostly the lack that there that you were referring to in your um rant um when we speak of a lacanian lack um does that require uh a conscious subconscious or unconscious or can um a sponge lack water
1: for lacan lack only comes out of the uh frustration experienced by a a subject, baby, as it grows through various stages. Uh, mirror stage, the frustration of the breast being pulled away, lack coming in as those elements. Uh, very much, uh, I don't believe there's an anthropomorphic version of lack. It's very much tied to Lacan. There are people, I'm sure, who disagree
0: with that, but I think inside of Lacan's writing, I never heard anything. Did that answer you?
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I'm just trying to understand also the, 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 the um, what it means to make the switch from molar to molecular. And I feel like it's also a um, move away from requiring a conscious to build concepts on.
1: You ever seen dot art, uh, pointillism?
4: Uh, like the 19th century painting style?
1: Sure. Or any piece of art that's ultimately just tiny little dots.
4: Yeah, yeah,
1: So at what point is it the drawing and at what point is it dots? When you zoom
0: in or out.
4: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, good point, yeah. Yeah, well it's it's always dots and it's always painting.
0: Yeah.
1: It's it's we're not talking about like them being separate elements. They're always kind of both but it's specifically about how we're addressing them or talking about them, or what we're referring to, or what they're doing, or how they work. Uh, the painting doesn't work with other paintings to make the painting. The dots work with other dots to make the painting. These these things shift, but they're ultimately all part of the same sort of uh, element, uh, larger scale thing that we call the the gregarious, the, the uh, law of large numbers, whatever it may be, the aggregate of it. We've assigned these values. It is this larger painting that we're able to look at, but it is made of all of these tiny little dots. And we're aware of that until the moment we're not. And then we're not aware of the molar until we are. And it kind of goes back and forth. It's very difficult to be aware of both uh, simultaneously.
4: And uh, in Deleuzean terms...
1: uh... Normatic says, In my understanding so far, lack is algorithmic. Uh, They go on with their processes. Um, uh, is that in reference normatic to Deleuze and Guattari here? Because I know we were just talking about Lacan, and I just I want to make sure I'm the right reference. Lac operates very differently for Deleuze and Guattari. I think here they're referring to kind of um, they're deconstructing Lacan or Freud's lack, um, because it it plays a very different. It's literally like a missing part for Deleuze and Guattari. Lac is produced though. It's an affirmative. Thing. it's a positive element that is sort of added to things it's not a oh i'm lacking things i have a big black hole that i'm constantly filling up with which is sort of the cons uh, or psychoanalysis is kind of set up for G uh lack is a positive thing that is created and produced that blocks and fucks things up but it is an element it's not a negative that things are sort of being sucked in towards or causes drives uh, that it's it's produced i think almost all of it is is not produced in the unconscious but i might be wrong on that
4: i Uh, i got my question again
1: uh sure we'll come back well let's let's finish with normatics real quick can you take a note um the quote from Holland. Uh first we'll quote from the early on. Desire does not lack anything. Lack is a counter effect of desire. It is deposited, distributed, vacualized within the real. When social organization deprives desire of its objective being. That's a uh, first first chapter, second, third third section of the first chapter. Um so Holland's analysis just to say it's worth thinking through. Um, Desire is not based on some primordial lack, nor does it derive from needs. It is instead a socially organized anti-production that superimposes needs and lack on productive desire. Without the application of this corrective to psychoanalysis and Western psychology in general, as Deleuze and Guattari put it, all resignations are justified in advance. The point of comparing various modes of social production is to understand the conditions under which the different ways in which anti-production interjects needs and or lack into desiring production. So lack comes from an v- almost polar opposite place as traditional psychoanalysis. It's very, it's very different than Lacan, for sure. It's one of the uh, Zizek's major critiques of, of Deleuze in general is how he handles lack, because that's kind of important to the big Z. Hope that helped, Normatic. Yeah, lack is the first paralogism. Uh, it's it's what produces lack. Um, but it is a produced like Tetris blocks put into thing. Uh, it's an after effect. It's the produced side effect of, of very real forces desire and how it's being utilized. But it's not a originary thing. It doesn't drive desire.
0: It doesn't create desire. The opposite in fact. It really, 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 really really did not
1: like Lacan's takes on stuff. Um, again, I, I make the joke uh, often. I can only imagine Lacan reading this. I'm, I'm not saying he was unaware of Guadari in general, but just, oh, my star pupil wrote a book. Oh, how exciting. And then reading this and being like, oh, god damn it. <laughs> like I just tend for some reason have this almost comedic vision of that in my
0: head because it's definitely not what Lacan taught. But it does build on a great deal in a pretty big way. Um, Misha, please.
4: Yeah, Um, maybe my question is a bit vague, but it is whether the molar is imminent from the molecular. Is the painting imminent from the dots, you think? Is that a a way to put it, or not?
0: Well, this is where the... uh... This is where the al- al- allegory or meta- metaphor I'm using
1: falls apart. <laughs> it, it only works on like a quick intuitive level because once you start breaking it down, it starts, there's reasons we don't, uh, you know, my sort of reality of things or all of the elements that make up the molecular around me. Again, it's all partial objects. It's incredibly difficult for us to name what they are or even to see them. In fact, fucking possible, maybe impossible. But instead, uh, we see collections of them. We name them. We combine them via a representation for us to discuss. So we're kind of already uh, behind a lot of this, uh, just by the nature of how language operates in and of itself. Reminds me of a discussion we were having in our Logic of Sense group, actually, about how Deleuze is trying to utilize language to describe how language is broken underneath how language works. Uh, and I think a little bit of that is happening as well when you start discussing the big deal and it's they were early on saying this and it's the thing reason i use that example is we're not talking about here's the molecular there's a line and then there's the molar uh, i went through this the first time reading through and i still occasionally say something similar where i say oh the subject is kind of my the subjectivity sort of created at the horizon between the two and it's like ah uh, between the two that's a tough one because that's not really how it works they're not you know, opposite each other across this plane, they're,
0: the way that they operate is very different. Very different. Sorry, I wish I could give a better example of it.
4: Okay, but so it's, it's, it's safe to say that, you, that they're not hinting at eminence with, with, when they talk
0: about the molar. Uh, no. No, no. No, molar is statistical large
1: numbers and aggregates. So it's representation, it's social machines. These things are not eminent at all.
4: Ah, uh, yeah, ag- aggregates is a, is, a, is a better. Thank you. That, that that word is a good one. Thank you.
0: Uh, Normatic, I posted a anarchist
1: without content who I know occasionally has listened to this, Uh, at least I've Um, wonderful blog uh, put together some fantastic PDFs this is a a graph about the five paralogisms and how they work the critique of representation which is the first paralogism uh, is displacement or lack and how lack is created through signifier and signified the repressing repressing representative which is a lot and apologize basically i'm telling
0: you here's the answer now you have to go read all of this other shit but it does help Does help a lot to google uh paralogisms has a lot written on it luckily
1: uh because it is one of the more difficult things to understand uh the specifically the paralogism where lack comes out i believe is going to be uh the one where um Something is denied to you. It's how Oedipus comes to be. Uh, something is denied, and by denying the thing you've created, the desire uh for the thing that you've denied it's not as easy as saying, Oh, I've said you can't have it, therefore you want it it's even though it seems like that on the surface. The difficulty around the entire thing is that we're actually telling someone what they can't have and the representation is what we're telling them they want. The Example through Oedipus, and it's the reason they say things like incest didn't exist in previous socius or incest was impossible in the primitive, is because they didn't have the conception of mother or sister or these other things in the same way that we do. When we sit and we say, uh, I'm not saying you can't have that and slapping your hand as you reach for a cookie. This is not what we're talking about. We're talking about me saying, oh no, you, you can't have a happy marriage. What the fuck does that even mean? That's, that's just this huge, large-scale representation. But as such, I've created in that conversation, I've created this signifier of prohibition, which is the demand on this normative state of what a marriage is and that you specifically can't have it, whatever I do that with. In that process... The signified is also generated. And that is this fucked up version of uh kind of what I've said it as that you've integrated it as. This changes how the referent works and how desire pushes. Now you're striving for what sort of is the idea of a happy marriage. When that's that's not what you want. No one wants like that's not a thing. No one wants that. They just wanna sort of be married and be happy or not be married or whatever. They want Something else, but now they've learned what they don't, what they want. The moment they've been told they can't have it. Um, no, 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 matic This is this is the point, and this is why it's so difficult. They're totally, if we call it incest, tough. <sighs> People long ago fucked everybody. Like there was probably incest happening, as we call it. But let me say it another way. Um, If I were to go back and a thousand years ago and say, um, well, where's your money? They didn't have money. They had coin. They had merchants. They had elements sort of of that. But I can't say that everyone wanted money. Incest didn't exist because they didn't have the prohibitions and the rules around it. Incest itself as a story requires a very specific triangulated tight family unit. It requires very particular social contingent moments that sort of are realities and an entire social historical reality in order to even have it happen that they didn't happen back then. So incest, people fucking their moms, sisters, dads, whatever, all kinds of shit. Humans have been gross forever. We're weird. Um, But as we prohibit it today, you couldn't have it back then because they didn't have a tight-knit family that was constrained under the realities of capital. Instead, actually, they didn't have incest because, to be very blunt, and it's how they describe it, women were effectively cattle. Uh, or uh, the, the ability to, pro- to have children was something that was so necessary for the family to continue growing that you couldn't imagine having incest because you needed to sell your sister off. You needed to have your mother produce more children. The, the way incest operates inside of these things, it changes, it's different. And so when they say incest didn't exist, it's not one person fucking another. It's the specific triangulation of mommy, daddy, me, and having sexual desire. So the moment you say to a child, oh, no, no, that's mommy, that's mommy. Oh no, I saw you went in, mommy was in the shower. You saw that. You can't, You can't fuck your mom. I know you want to, you can't commit incest, it's disgusting and awful. And it's not really how desire works, but now I've told this kid, hey, you can't, no, no, I know you want to, you want to fuck your mother. All of this suddenly creates this massive network effect of meaning that is being extrapolated inside of that poor child's mind that's creating and Impinging desires, creating a signifier-signified relationship, and bending desire to generate significant amounts of lack. It's, it's their entire critique of representation is how it operates and fucks up desire at, at a, like a base level. Sorry for the ramble. Hope that hope that helped. Normadic, I kind of went off a little. Apologies. Any comments, questions, anything? Because I. I do think we actually may be done with this section a while. Good. All right, fair enough. Uh, I will will close out. Uh, Thank all of you joining. We will be moving into psychoanalysis and capitalism next week. Um, I would suggest if you can uh, read it ahead of time. This is um, the remaining sections of this are significantly more difficult and there's a lot that's happening so it's worth reading through make notes of where you want to spend a little bit of extra time we will do so you can message me beforehand if you want